Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. This program is pre-recorded, but back to live programming next Sunday, God willing. And thanks to Don Jeffries and Ali Siatatan for filling in the last two weeks. They did a great job. Thanks, guys. J.J. French, founder, guitarist, manager of the world-famous heavy metal band Twisted Sister is here this hour. He has a brand new book, half business guide, half memoir of his life in rock and roll. It's called Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. And then coming up in hour two, we'll meet a former deputy coroner from the Midwest, Donna Frankart. She'll discuss her years of medical legal death investigations, which are those involving suspicious, violent, unexplained, or unexpected deaths. And she'll discuss her complex relationships with both the living and the dead, including some supernatural experiences. Wow, who put this show together? I'd listen. Uh, In addition to founding Twisted Sister, that sold more than 20 million records worldwide, J.J. French is one of the top entrepreneurs in entertainment. After taking over as manager of the band in the 70s, French developed Twisted Sister into the most heavily licensed heavy metal band in history, leading the group to perform more than 9,000 shows in 40 countries. I have to tell you, I really enjoyed Twisted Business. It's an unexpected, inspiring, whirlwind story of transformation and redemption. Twisted Business follows French's adventurous-filled life, from growing up in New York City in the 60s to working as a drug dealer and struggling as an addict before quitting cold turkey and finally to creating and cultivating Twisted Sister and turning it into one of the most successful bands in the world. J.J. French, welcome aboard, sir. How are you? Oh, Richard, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. You know, you have your, your show, it gives me so much entertainment with all of your guests, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, humbled that you have me as a guest. You know, oh. I love listening to your show. Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. And I don't know, is this your term? Did you create a new genre called a bismoire? Is that yours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, from a marketing standpoint, I came up with the idea of a biz war. Well, I was thinking to myself, when the book was coming together, I think you, you are, we're all in the entertainment business, right? So the entertainment business is always a what have you done for me lately business? And how do you differentiate yourself from other things? So the first thing I thought about was it's a memoir and a business book. And we were trying to figure out which one I was going to write. And I said to my co-author, isn't it like any business person who writes a book is telling them their story of how they became the business person that they became? I mean, that's the journey. So it's a memoir and it's a business book. So I decided you take the term rom-com for romantic comedy or dramedy is a dramatic comedy, you know, that they use in media. So why not come up with a biz war? And I said, and if the word is that effective, every book from now on, that's a business book will be regarded or referred to as a biz war. So that's really what it, thinking behind coming up with the term. It's interesting because for fans and the listeners who don't know sort of the trajectory of your life and your career, you did all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll before the rock and roll. Well, I did it before the band. Right. So the sex, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing did all happen at the age of 15, which is a great time to do it if you're going to do it 
1967. So if you look at the bullseye year of the uh, baby boom generation, you know, I was a baby boomer. I was towards the end of the baby boomers. Uh, you know, I was, a, I was born in 52, but that was part of the baby boom generation, which was the largest hump of the population at the time. So when I was 14 years old, Sergeant Pepper came out. So I always look at that and say, wow, I was at the bullseye. But when Sergeant Pepper came out, I still wasn't smoking weed. You know, that didn't happen until the following September. And finally, somebody said, you should smoke pot. And I was like, I don't know if I want to get high. I don't want to get high. And so he put me in a closet and he said, keep smoking until you get high. You know, so he stick me in a closet. I kept smoking. And I, after about 20 minutes, I came out. I was blasted. I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, how much is this stuff? And they said, well, you know, it's uh, you buy a nickel bag. You get eight joints out of it. A nickel bag, $5. And I said, wow. So you buy you buy the joints separately? He said, yeah, you get a nickel bag for five bucks. You make eight joints. You sell it for $8. You make three bucks. So I thought, man, I said, so what, after a nickel, what do you buy? And then they go, you buy an ounce. And I go, what's an ounce cost? Now, Richard, this tells you how old I am. <laughs> Ounces of marijuana back in those days were $15, okay? <laughs> That's like saying by my father, you know, back when I was a boy, gas was three cents a gallon. You know, it's one of those <laughs> yep. kinds of stories, right? Or when I was a boy, you could see Led Zeppelin for $3. Whoa, right? <laughs> so I said to my friend, can I buy an ounce? He goes, yeah. I said, how many nickel bags do you got to have an ounce? He goes, seven. I said, wait, wait, wait. I can make $35 on a $15 investment. I said, all of a sudden, I'm thinking there's a business here. I was telling people to get into the marijuana business like 55 years ago. Now everyone's in the marijuana business. I was ahead of my time, so to speak. So I thought my, my parents had no money to buy me guitars. I said, this is a lucrative profession. The problem seriously the problem was, was that this perfect trajectory of being 15 in 1967 coincided with a whole hippie explosion in America. And with that hippie explosion was the drug explosion, and it was the rock and roll explosion. And of course, then there was the politics involved, because the war was the big deal. It was anti-war. Now, you know, these days, there's a division, left and right, Republican, Democrat, and, you know, Trump, not Trump, whatever. It is. You know, you don't know where your fans are. But back in those days, Richard, everybody hated the war. Everybody hated Nixon. You know, you stand up on stage at Woodstock, 400,000 people. You go, I hate the war. Nobody is going to argue with you. No one's going to give you the finger. They're all going, we hate the war. I hate to say it was a simpler time, but it was a simpler time. You know, it was us against them, meaning us under 30 and over 30. And we were not divided by Democrat, Republican. It was this thing. So I enveloped and lived a life of uh, activism, anti-war activities, drug dealing, drug taking, and going to rock and roll shows every weekend. So I was immersed. And when you're immersed in it, um, you can't even tell how bad it's getting. So over the next five years, the whole scene that happened in New York City. You can imagine what the Lower East Side was like when the heroin came in. It was bad. And it wound up destroying everything. So we started off as hippie flower children. And my parents would say, you know, you shouldn't smoke pot. It's going to lead to heroin. And I'd go, you have no idea what you're talking about, man. We're like, we're not like, this isn't the 50s. We're hippie flower children. We like LSD. And five years later, my mother was right on the money. The whole scene had become heroin infested. Your initial purpose for getting into into the drug business was so that you could buy amps and guitars and go see your favorite bands, right? Yeah, but I also indulged. You know, I, I, mean, I took as much drugs as I sold. So I was high 24-7. I mean, my parents put me in a rehab clinic at one point because I was, I was an addict and, and I, um, I was getting high. I don't think I was not high for five solid years. I don't think it was a, a moment, except when I had my tonsils out. I couldn't 
smoke, but I don't think there was a moment in the five years that I was not high because I was I smoked like twenty joints a day, took LSD two hundred fifty times, got into heroin, uh, DMT, angel dust. I mean, you name it, and you and we did it in in copious amounts. Not only that, but I went to Europe in seventy one, and Amsterdam was the number one drug capital of the world in seventy one. And what did I do in Amsterdam? I sold drugs in Amsterdam. I live in a drug dealer hotel. But you know, it's a serious hotel, Richard. When you go in and sign your name on the paperweight, it's a half a pound of Afghan hash is the paperweight. <laughs> oh, um, I, needless to say, that's a serious hotel. Let's go back to February 12th, 1964. You're watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You said, I want to be that. I want to do that. What happened to that dream? Well, that dream was always there. But, you know, that dream is one of those crazy dreams. You know, like, Richard, when did you decide you want to be a radio personality? At what point did this hit you? That you wanted to, what, at what point? Probably when I was about 12. Okay. You heard somebody on the radio, like, and said, I want to do it. What was the point for you? Listening to uh, The Tonight Show through my parents' bedroom uh, door at night, listening. I wanted, to, I wanted to be a broadcaster, Johnny Carson. Okay. All right. So that had an incredible impression on you, correct? Right. Incredible. And you're 12 years old which means you're at that impressionable age. When you ask people like you and me in the entertainment world about what was the inspiration for us being what we are, this is the difference between people like you and me and people, let's say, are in the business world. Most businessmen who become successful become, become businessmen after college. You know, they don't know what they're doing yet. They may take finance. They may take business. But the point is the passion part hasn't arrived yet in them. But guys like you or people like you and me, it's the same story. At the age of 10, I can't tell you how many actresses I know who you say, when did you want to become an actress? They go, I was 10 years old. My mom took me to see Annie on Broadway. And I went, oh, my God, I have to do that. You know, and then you follow your dreams. So when the Beatles came out on Ed Sullivan, yes, I looked at the television screen and said, that's what I want to do, because I didn't want to become a jewelry salesman like my dad, because his friends are being murdered. I didn't want to become a politician like my mother suggested, because Kennedy had just been assassinated. So I was sure that wasn't exactly the safest profession. But Richard, what would have been cooler in 1964 than to have a number one song on the radio with girls screaming and being a rock star? That was cool. So I said, that's what I want to do. However, my first gold record However, if somebody put their hand on my shoulder at that very moment and said to the young John Segal at the time, they said, okay, you will have a gold, you, you'll, be, you'll be a rock star, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. You have a gold record. And I go, really, when? Thinking it's going to be in a year or two. You know, I'm 12, right? I'm 12. And they go, it'll take 20 years and six months from today. I may very well have said, screw that, by the way. I may very well have said 20 years and six, and that's absolutely true. 20 years and six months from the date I saw the Beatles on TV, Twisted Sister got its first gold record. So the beauty of not knowing is the beauty of not knowing. You don't know. So that was it. So let's, again, to your point, 12 years old, see the Beatles on TV. 20 years later, Twisted Sister, what happened? Well, the first thing that had to happen was I had to go through the whole drug scene and clear that out. So now I've cleared it out. Now it's 1972 which is only eight years later. I still had 12 more years to go to that gold record, mind you. However, the 12 years later person, that's the 20-year-old John, had come to the conclusion that drugs and alcohol had no business being in the rock and roll world or any other business for that matter. I had lost my taste for not only the drugs, but I lost my taste for people who were doing the drugs because they were full of crap. And I just got, I said to myself, you know, that's not for me. And, and as I detail in the book, 
the book goes through the 11 versions of Twisted Sister. People don't know the 11 versions of Twisted Sister. God knows by the time we hit much music in Canada, we were a fully formed entity, a fully formed entity that everybody saw. And I have to just say, I could not thank much music more than I could possibly thank them. I thank them every day. But you know, your rules in Canada are very tight. They only allow a certain amount of things in because you have to play Canadian. Uh, do you, you know about that? Right, right. CanCon. We call it CanCon. Yeah. So that means that anything outside of Canada is blessed to be allowed in Canada. So we were one of those bands that were just like, come on in. And our relative record sales against the population, the general population in Canada was higher than any other country. So, for example, you know, the ratio of record sales in the U.S. versus Canada is always 10 to 1. Right, right. So you sell a million records in the United States, you sell 100,000 in Canada. So we sold 3 million records of Stay Hungry. We've sold like 900,000 in Canada. Wow. We had three times that, okay? So Canada went really nuts on us. But again, I mean, I'm kind of pushing this thing forward, you know, like fast yeah. forward a little bit. But to your point of the John that succeeded was the John that learned its lessons. And by the time that John was 20, that John had seen. 10 or 11 iterations before, you know, the classic lineup with yourself and Dee Snyder and so forth. So those early years, you were playing bars. You were like a cover band, right? Yeah, we started out like everybody does. As a cover band. So the earliest versions of the band were, uh, we did songs. Remember, this was a glam era that the band came from. So we looked like, you know, cross-dressers because that was the hip thing to look like. <laughs> we never got blowback on that. That was just the way it was. So we covered Moth the Hoople, David Bowie, T-Rex, Iggy Pops, Alice Cooper, you know, all the glam, ghoulish kind of stuff. There was a lot of it out there. And that was the beginnings and did you, from the get-go, did you sort of assume the role as the business manager, the marketer, all of that, the promotions guy? No, I was a musician. And I did not sign up to do anything more than play guitar. In fact, I was so happy that I didn't have to do anything. I was thrilled. I just showed up and went, okay, if I'm in the band, I'm the guitar player. I don't want to know about anything. I had no intentions of doing it. I didn't take over until we had already had misfires by several other managers. If you look at the 50 years of the band's existence, nearly 50, I've managed it about 40 of those 50. But for 10, we went through a lot of stuff. So my first manager was a guy named Frank Fritchone. Okay, enough said about that. So Frank Fritchone was the first manager. He lasted about two years. And then the next manager was the drummer, Mel, who took over. And Mel's the guy who hired me. And I always thought that Mel was like a manager kind of guy, so that didn't bother me until Mel stole the truck from me with the guitar player Keith and then held it for ransom and then smashed the equipment up. So that was depressing. So after that occurred, now we're talking 73, 74, 75. Now we're talking Labor Day weekend 75, and um, I look at the bass player Kenny and I go, do you want to continue or do you want to stop? And he went, I, I don't think we can continue. So we broke up for two months and I went to work as a waiter at Terrace on the Park Caterers in Flushing Meadow. And he went to work in Corvette's department store and we did that for two months. And then he hated working at the department store. I hated working as a waiter. We decided to put the band back together again. That's when I got Eddie Ojeda. At that moment, I became the manager. One of the things that you do in the book is you take the name Twisted from Twisted Sister 
And each one of those letters stands for one of the life lessons, one of the business lessons. T is for tenacity, obviously. You, I mean, did you set in your mind a day like after 10 years of struggle and having, you know, your former bandmates who were, I'm guessing at some point were maybe like brothers to you. And then they totally betray you, steal your equipment, hold it for ransom. You pay them. They return it all, you know, busted up. Did you say at this point, okay, if we don't make it by such and such a date, I'm, I'm going into the jewelry business. Okay. So self doubt number one occurred in 1975. We broke up for two months. When we got back together again and I took over management, and then I hired D. And D was a really important piece to the puzzle because the band had already had a decent reputation in 1973 and 74, but because of the alcoholic alcoholism of the band members, the, the reputation had crashed. My agent at the time said that you needed to hire a guy who could sing Led Zeppelin songs because that was a very important thing to have. And D sang Zeppelin perfectly. I just recently found a recording of, of us doing the whole Zepp first album, and I just found it, and I just sent it to all the guys in the band. They were blown away because it sounded exactly like Zeppelin. So it was perfect. That band went through many fits and starts and fits and starts and fits and starts and fits and starts. And, you know, we were turned down more times in a bedsheet and came back more times than Freddy Krueger. And so <laughs> as the rejections piled up, and Richard, we're in the entertainment business. We know about rejections, don't we know? Oh, okay. you could wallpaper a room, right? With the, the uh, with the rejection letters. Unbelievable. So as the rejections piled up, the interesting thing about our scenario is that the band was a popular bar band and we were playing to thousands of people. So we get a rejection letter in the afternoon. Thank you for saying blah, 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 no. And then we go out at night and play to um, 2,000 people. So you could get over that. The problem was that because I was projecting enough in the future, I, I saw the drinking age was going to change, which was going to affect the bar scene. You know, part of success in this business is being able to foresee things. So let me ask you, Rich, do you, are you good at foreseeing things? Do you, are you always conscious about, you know, the next six months, next 12 months in terms of your own life and how you run your life? Do you try to figure out where things are going to be heading? You know, I wish I were much better at that. I'm like a basset hound. I've got my nose to the ground, you know, and I'm sniffing around, but I'm blessed to have a wife who's wonderful at that. Okay. So here's the thing. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Keith Richards was once asked this question. They said, what's the difference between you and Mick? And he goes, well, Mick gets up every morning and he thinks, what am I doing this morning? What am I doing in 10 days from now, 10 weeks from now, 10 months from now, 10 years from now? Keith says, I get up every morning and I go, I got up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Keith. I'm Keith. I'm Keith. I'm Keith. Well, London School got- of Economics, right? Mick went to London School of Economics. Yeah. Yeah. So he's blessed by having Mick, right. okay, who could see things or at least plan ahead. I think the thing about Twisted was it was always one foot here looking out. And seeing where things were going, you know, and I was getting concerned because the scene that we were in, which was unlike any music scene that's ever been, it will never happen again because listen, musicians, if you're listening to me talk, you're never going to be blessed with what I was blessed with. A drinking age of 18, which means kids who were 15 had fake proof that they made in shop class. Richard, does shop class even exist anymore? Does anybody even know what shop (laughs) class is? Right. You're laughing. I don't think anybody even knows what shop class is. Uh, I think they, who is is George Carlin, that line about uh, in one year, Shop class went from making hash pipes to uh, nunchucks or something. 
<laughs> well, to the point, you can make anything in shop class, couldn't you? So they made phony proof. Right. Back in those days, it was the easiest thing in the world to make fake driver's licenses. Everybody had a fake driver's license. So you had, thousands, you had hundreds of thousands of kids in these bars that held the 5,000 people. This was a luxury that we had to plan, except here's the problem. The New York State Legislature decided to raise the drinking age. And uh. I said to myself, aha, if that's going to be the case, and they're going to do it slowly, they're going to like move it up one year at a time until it got to 21. So I started looking down the road and said, man, in three years, if we're not out of here, these clubs are going to go out of business. So we were confronted with, here's the reality. I felt like we were on an iceberg and the iceberg was melting and I'm waiting for a helicopter to come down and pull me off this iceberg before it collapses into the ocean. So with that in mind, the obsessive nature of the band driving itself to get out of this scene and to somehow get a record deal came up. All right. We're going to take a quick time out, JJ, and uh, we'll be back and discuss more of the lessons from your life in rock and roll. JJ French, founding member of Twisted Sister and the author of The Bismoir, Twisted Business Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. JJ French is with us, founding member of Twisted Sister and uh, the uh, Bismar just out is Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. There were so many near misses on your road to finally the brass ring. I lost count, but it seems like there was, I don't know, six, seven near misses where you almost had that record deal. And then some like an asteroid coming out of, you know, and hitting somebody on the head. Just go through some of those near misses if you could. Oh, God. So I don't know. Like the... the um. Well, going back to the original band, the first time every any producer ever showed up, these two big time producers came to see the band and wanted us to take us to a studio. And the lead singer was so drunk, he forgot to make it to the studio that day. And that deal fell through. That was early on. That was just like one example of God deciding to screw with us just a little bit, you know. But when it gets to the, the, the thing with D and the band, you know, we start making these demos, you know, and like everything is, is, is uh, you know, we're making these demo tapes and we're trying to get a record deal, a record deal. And, and we get approached by... Um, this guy named Roddy Shashua, and um, he um, he he's a European guy, and he and he and he sees in the band this opportunity to, to to sign the group, and and for some reason, and I don't understand what happened in this particular case, but um, something went off in a conversation that we had with him, and he kind of turned himself off with it, and it kind of fell apart, and we thought maybe it was the way we were acting, or maybe the way we were coming off, it was weird. Uh, but we felt like we missed an opportunity. So the next time an opportunity was going to come, we weren't going to mess with it. And the next uh, opportunity finally showed up in the guise of one of the most famous producers in the world, which is Eddie Kramer. And Eddie Kramer was right. Jimi Hendrix's engineer, producer, uh, legendary guy. And um, we were told that Jimmy, that, that we were told that, that, that this guy was going to uh, show up and, um, you know, and, 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 how did we know he was going to show up? Because some girl came up to me during soundcheck and said that her mother worked in a bank and that this guy named Eddie Kramer, who's his famous producer, when she said, how are you doing, Mr. Kramer? He says, very good. She goes, well, what are you going to do this weekend? And he says, I think I'm going to go see a band called Twisted Sister. Now, what's the chances of Eddie Kramer walking into a bank telling a random teller and that teller's daughter happens to be someone who comes to see Twisted Sister? She comes in and she tells me Eddie Kramer's coming. I don't believe her. Eddie comes down. Here's the problem. The night Eddie 
came down was the gasoline strike in 1979. People don't understand what the gas crisis was like. We had two big gas crises. We had one in 73 and one in 79. But what happens in a gas crisis? People don't go to clubs. They just can't afford it. They can't, they can't go out. So the club was nearly empty, but Eddie Kramer shows up. But the band was prepared. Band, the band played a great set. Eddie Kramer signs the band. And um, we finished recording this stuff, and we spend the next several months trying to get signed, and nothing is happening. And I wind up saying to the band, like, maybe we should go to Europe and, and see if we can get a deal. So I go to Europe to a thing called the Meetem Festival. I don't know if you know Meetem, but Meetem is this conglomeration of record labels where more deals get signed in this one weekend there than anywhere else in the world. And I meet a whole lot of record people. And the first people I meet is Freddie Cannon from Career Records, who's a famous label. And Freddie was a new, was a, a car salesman from Detroit. So everything was, babe, 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 love you, babe. This is great, babe. Here's the deal, babe. He pulls out a three-by-five card. He goes, babe, here's the deal, babe. $50,000, babe. You're going to, blah, 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 babe, you're going to fly over here. Babe, you're going to record. But, buddy, you're going on the tour with scorpions babe 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 then i also meet the mizels which were a, a, a german or a dutch couple they had a lot of money i met them and i met this guy from rococo Productions. i met three people but it didn't matter i had a deal i come back to the the band i fly back to new york we got a deal this guy career records freddie cannon babe everything's babe love you babe babe well babe never called me back babe never responded babe never replied to in those days you know we had telexes we didn't have emails in those days you know so you didn't right, respond right. to it so that was a that that was a that was a crusher because i came back with a deal well the next thing i hear is that the mizels they're interested so they fly to New York. They open up a new label. They meet with us. They go, listen, this is great. We're going to sign you guys, but we've got three records coming out before you, and then you'll be the fourth act. I said, what are the three records? They go, Johnny Carson's Greatest Hits, Pope John Paul's Mass, uh, New York Yankees, Yankee Stadium uh, speech, and an album by a new band called The Big Fat Pet Clams from Outer Space. You do have that album, don't you, Richard? The Big Fat Pet Clams from Outer Space. Of I course, certainly of have course. that. It's one of the Number one with in my a collection. <laughs> so... So the Johnny Carson album comes out at bombs. The Pope's album comes out at bombs. Big pet, fat pet clans of matter space goes nowhere and they fold their record label. So now we lose that deal. Then we get a call from this guy, Peter Hauke from Rococo records. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, this is it. I love you guys. Now this is a couple of months later. And he flies to New York and he meets with us and he give him our new demo tapes. And he goes, this is for real. This is for real. I absolutely swear. This is for real. Great. This is great. He flies to LA to open up an office in LA, flies back to New York, hands us contracts. We sign all these contracts. We give him the new demos. He flies off back to Germany. I get a phone call from my lawyer the next day. Are you sitting down? Yeah. Why? He said he had a heart attack on the plane. Oh man. I went, what? He said, yeah. Said, I said, is he dead? He said, well, he may n- not be dead in, in reality, but the deal is dead. It's over. So that was a crushing blow. So those were three back-to-backs as an example. And there were way more to come because Eddie Kramer was trying to promote the singles and, and that he recorded with us. So he goes to all the record labels and the record labels are systematically turning us down over and over and over and over and over again. So we're getting all those rejections plus the Eddie Kramer rejections. And it's just one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. So to your point where you said, was there another time where you kind of looked at each other and went, is this over? It was coming really close, really, really, really close. What, what kept you going? Because, you know, there's another thing in business where, yes, tenacity and the difference between those who succeed and those who fail is, you know, that 
person gets up the 99th time after being knocked down. But there's also kind of a rule in business where you also have to know when to quit because, you know, you could just keep going and, and, and lose everything. So what kept you going? We knew we were good. We knew we were good. We couldn't accept that these confluences of circumstances were continuing to work against the band. And we couldn't get signed in the United States because all the record labels in New York thought we were terrible. Why, Richard? Because when you don't get signed early, then they all think you suck, so therefore no one's going to sign you. So we started to wonder if we had a scarlet letter on our chest. And things were really starting to get bleak. But just on one of those nights, like probably right after the Rococo production thing where the guy collapsed, a fan walked up to me in a club and said, look at this man. And holds up a newspaper from England called Sounds. And he goes, do you ever see this newspaper? I said, no. English rock paper. The guy says, look on page three. On page three, there was a chart. So all the writers had their own little personal chart. And one of the writers, Dante Benuto or Jeff Barton or Malcolm Dome, one of these three, had their little hot song charts. It was independent metal bands. Somebody had sent our single over to Europe. And he had gotten it on his desk. And he fell in love with that. We were number one. We're number one. We're number one somewhere. I don't even know where the place was, but we're number one. I freak out. So we call them up. We call Sounds Magazine. And we go, I can't believe we're number one on your chart. What does that mean? And the guy goes, not nothing, really. It's a personal chart. It's my, I just happen to love it. But I'm playing the record for a lot of people over here, and they really like it. And we want to send a reporter to the United States to see your band. So they send this guy named Gary Bushell, who comes over and sees the band play at a club in upstate New York. And he writes a, he writes a huge story called Sister Sledgehammer. And the story gets seen by the president of a punk label in Europe. And we get the phone call from the guy who says, I need to come over and see you guys. And this was 1981, Christmas time, 81. And we thought, I don't think he's going to make it over. And he says to um, my co-manager at the time, my, he says, what's the best day to see the band? And my co-manager said, well, they happen to have a big concert in Poughkeepsie, New York, and, and, and that would be the time to come see the band. So supposedly he's going to come and see the band. So this is how cynical we are. You know, we're in the dressing room. He's supposed to come over and basically, you know, is this guy ever going to make it over? No, he's going to die in a plane crash on the way over. But if he doesn't die in the plane crash on the way over, he'll die in the car crash on the way to the venue. But if he does happen to make it to the venue, the lighting rig will fall on the band and kill the band. But if the band winds up surviving it, he will die in the way of the dressing room. will slip on a banana and die. And that was the thinking of the band. So what happens is um, he shows up sold out band on a great show and he walks to the dressing room and he goes well i want to sign you guys and we're like yeah okay sure yeah no 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 i really want to sign you yeah yeah sure okay just uh yeah send the papers now he walks out and he says to my co-manager he goes i don't understand it when you tell a band you're going to get signed they're freaking out why don't they care? He says, well, you got to understand their past. Um, they're very cynical. So D goes, 50 bucks says he dies on the way back to the airport. Mark goes, 100 bucks says the plane will just be destroyed by the IRA on the way over. Well, the bottom line is he gets on the plane. He flies back. Okay. However, this is December. In January, the worst blizzard in 100 years hits London and wipes out his office. Isn't this just too perfect? Oh, okay? man. His office is now destroyed. 
Okay, I gotta, so we're going to do a cliffhanger We're going to take a here. break, and we will continue shortly. <laughs> With the misery and the mayhem. It gets better, <laughs> folks. <laughs> All turns out well. J.J. French, founding member of Twisted Sister and the Bismar Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. When we left this story, JJ, it was another major disappointment. <laughs> so yeah. this this guy's going to come over, write this great article on the band, take it back to Europe, and the uh, a snowstorm, a freak snowstorm, wipes out his office. So yeah, so the guy from the record label's office gets wiped out. However, he soldiers on, and they do a deal. And comes April of, of 1982, and my lawyer says to me, "Guess what? We've done a deal with Secret Records. You guys are going to be on Secret Records. You're going to do a deal with Secret Records. We've got the deal. Pick it up at Kennedy Airport. I drive to Kennedy Airport. I go to the uh, international office there. Pick up the contract. Meet all the guys in the band on Northern Boulevard in Queens. I was centrally located where, where we all lived. We pull out the contract. We put it on the hood of D's car, and we're looking at it. It says Twisted Sister Secret Records." All we have to do is sign D, Mark, Eddie, me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So we sign the deal. It just so happens that that afternoon, I had a copy of the Daily News. And what was on the front page of the Daily News that day? England goes to war in the Falkland Islands. And I said, you know what? There's going to be no natural products to make records because they're going to have to use it for fighting the war. I said, this is just perfect. Why are we signing a deal in a country that's about to go to war? They have not been to war since World War II. So bottom line is we do the record, we make a video for the company, and then we get a phone call from Electric Lady Studios where the producer, the owner of Electric Lady Studios says to me, I understand you got a record deal. And my deal that I made with Eddie Kramer was that you're going to have to pay me for four times what it costs you to make your demos. And if you don't pay me, I'm going to break your legs. Nice. Lovely. Which I explained in the book. So he threatens to break my kneecaps. And I'd never been threatened. And the band had played in a lot of dubious locations for years and years and years, and no one ever threatened me. But this guy did a mob threat, going to break my legs. And I thought, this is the irony of ironies. You finally get a record deal, but I don't have my legs broken <laughs> if I don't pay this guy. So we... I don't get. I don't want to get too specific in the book, but let's just say that we knew a lot of very colorful characters in Long Island, and we got one of them to have a copacetic arrangement made. Right, with, guys with their nose over here. <laughs> yeah, you know, Nikki the chair, Frankie the shoe, Freddie the fork. You know, and and we make a, a copacetic deal, and we pay off, and now we go do the record. So now we finally make the we get the record done. The summer of '82, and we come back to the United States, and we're so thrilled that we actually made a record. I mean, come on, this is it now. This is a tech finally. You know, this is a 10-year journey. Finally, we have a record out. And we tell our fans, thank you so much for 10 years of support. But Twisted Sisters going to England and we're going to tour Europe. And thank you. Goodbye. It's wonderful. And you know, we do a farewell show. And, and we spend this money and we take out these radio ads. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we get a phone call from my lawyer. And I said, what's up? Is he sitting down? I go, why? He said, Sigurd just filed for bankruptcy. <laughs> oh, that is just... That's like a punch to the gut, and I wasn't even in the band. Yeah, so you know the point here is the book describes recovering from these kinds of. How do you recover? Well, obviously we recovered, and and I I can't give everything away in the book because there's a reason why you buy the book, but. But the ability to come back time after time after time after time is a resilience pattern by which we learned how to deal with it, you know, and, and dealing with rejection is really, really tough. I mean, I, 
we followed a pattern of rejection recovery, which was called mourning it, reflecting on it, um, re- retooling and reapplying. And, 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 and this, by the way, Richard, is a business lesson that can be used in any business for any reason, not just the music business. It's any business. So what we would do is we'd get this horrible news. We'd think about it. We'd mourn it because it hurt, right? You can't, you can't pretend it doesn't hurt. You'd be crazy if you pretended it was hurt. But you kind of process the hurt, and then you kind of reflect on it. You know something? Sometimes when bad things happen, they happen because you don't deserve to have it happen. Maybe you're not ready yet. Maybe you really are. You know, just because just because someone says you suck doesn't mean you don't suck. It's one of my favorite lines in the book. But like, just because something bad happens doesn't mean that you have to fold your tent. But it was bad. It was critical. I have to tell you right then, this moment that I just described to you when they went bankrupt and we had to cancel that European tour after we said goodbye to our fans in the United States, this was it. This was the moment that the rubber met the road. This was finally, this was the last shot. And what could we possibly do to recover from this last crisis? Well, obviously we recovered because you wouldn't know about Twisted Sister if we hadn't recovered. But the process by what happened in that recovery is detailed in the book. We just got about a, a minute and a half here before the break and we'll come back and discuss further. But getting back to sort of the business lessons and the life lessons, the W in Twisted is wisdom. Explain where, where that comes in. Any successful company, any successful company has to have somebody with the smarts to see things. Like I said, you know, it's the ability to see things 10 days, 10, 10 months, 10, 10 weeks, 10 years from now. So that's the inherent wisdom. And not everybody in a company has to have it at all. You know, you can't have five quarterbacks, but you have to have somebody that possesses enough wisdom to see things through when nobody else can see things through. So all the tenacity in the world is not going to last you unless you're smart enough to apply it. And we'll get into the further descriptions of the letters later on. But that's really what the W really, uh, why the W is so important. And that was you. And that was me. And I would say this. Yeah, I would say this. D on the creative side, me on the business side. Because D always wrote these phenomenal songs. And he was driven. And so it worked in tandem that way. J.J. French, founding member, Twisted Sister, and uh, the book, just out and available at fine bookstores everywhere. Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrow. And we are back with J.J. French, founding member, Twisted Sister. The abysmar is Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. First of all, before we forget, how do we get a copy, J.J.? Well, the easiest way, I think, is Amazon right now. If it's not in your bookstore, Amazon always has it, and it's doing really, really well. So I believe there may be some signed copies left at Barnes & Noble in New York City on Fifth Avenue and maybe at Book Soup in Los Angeles. If you call Book Soup or the Barnes & Noble in uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York City, they may have some signed copies left. Otherwise, uh, you have to buy copies of it. And, and if you do get a copy through Amazon, please leave a review. They've all been great, and I would greatly appreciate that you do that. It's it's a wild ride, I have to say. You know, beginning with your, your early days, growing up Jewish, New York, 1950s, you know, selling Boy Scout cookies and setting records, and uh, from there into uh, a life of... Uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then, of course, the uh, the mammoth success of the band. Uh, overnight success, 20 years in the making. Let's talk about inspiration, the I in Twisted. Yeah. So I go into what tenacity is. Without tenacity, you got nothing. And without wisdom, uh, being able to apply it. But you know what, Richard? Inspiration is the whole deal. And because the inspiration is what drives you. You know, in the early days of a six, uh, artist's dream, all you have is inspiration. You don't have anything else. You haven't figured out a way to monetize it. But you just have this 
deep desire. And you know what that means? That means you're willing to sacrifice everything you've ever done in your life for this dream that you have. And that's the separation between people who who really, really make it and people who don't. You know, a gold medalist, a skater who wins a gold medal, is they win the gold medal because they were up at four o'clock in the morning. And they had to do it. But you and I aren't going to be doing that at 4 o'clock in the morning. But the person who wins a gold medal, they're going to be doing it at 4 o'clock in the morning. And that's the difference. you know. So why do they do it? Because when they were 10 or 8 or 7 or 6, they watched the Olympics and saw some phenomenal skater and said, I can do that. So inspiration is what fuels your passion. And hopefully, if you're in a business, you can convert that inspiration into money. Because inspiration does not last indefinitely. I look at it as like a pool or like a cup of fuel. And, you know, you keep dipping into it. And eventually, the inspiration has to convert into monetary success because you got to pay your bills. You have to have a life. So your inspiration does work, but you need to be inspired. And like you were inspired by listening to the Johnny Carson show, I was inspired by watching the Beatles on TV and seeing all these great artists that I had the luxury of watching at the Fillmore East growing up because you could see them for $3 any night of the week. And, you know, people don't have that anymore. They don't have that ability, but you can have YouTube, but it's not the same thing. Just uh, I want to get back to the, um, you know, when the band finally just went, you know, crazy, successful, stay hungry. Um, MTV obviously had a huge, a huge part in that. What was that? What was like that? Like when the success finally came after all of those years, and the and the money started coming in. Well, I felt like we were an 18-month pregnant woman that finally gave birth. Because, you know, the band had been together for so long and had played so many shows, which are detailed in the book. All the 9,000 performances are detailed in the book, which is pretty crazy to look at it. You know, success is a, is a measure of, of um, preparedness, meaning opportunity. You know, that's really, you know, you can, you can call it luck. But, you know, if you're prepared to take advantage of the great situation when it finally comes, it comes. It just so happens that we coincided with MTV. And that was a great time. Well, it was a good time and it was a bad time. Um, our videos became super famous and our videos shot us into the mega world. And nowhere was that more exemplified than in Canada. Because in much music... Um, you guys didn't pick every American band. You picked a couple of them, and we were one of them. And you blasted us everywhere. So between Much Music and the radio stations, um, it was pretty astonishing. However, I will tell you this. I was 32 at that point when the band you know, hit the big time, and I'm really glad I was 32 because I think if I did it at 22, it would have been much more distorted in my head. By the time I was 32... I had all that cynicism, all that self-doubt to the point where I wasn't interested in the parties. I wasn't interested in their excesses. All I wanted was a check. I wanted to go home. And I'm grateful for being older because I think if I was 22, it could have just been stupid. But instead, I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to spend money right now. I'm not going to get crazy right now because it could all end tomorrow. That comes with being older and being smarter, not with youth. You know, people mistake The biggest mistake that people who become famous make is that they think fame lasts forever. And it does not. You know, you do not own fame. You rent fame. The public allows you to rent it for a certain period of time. And maybe if you're fortunate, like the Beatles or Madonna or Michael Jackson, you have a lifetime of fame. But think about this. Think about this curve. You know, Twist has been around for 49 years. And we've had an extraordinary career. But we were super famous in 1984, 85, 86. Someone like 
Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, they remained at this level. That's an insane level. It can drive you crazy, actually. It really can drive you crazy. I know I'm not a fan of celebrity at all. I like an anonymity. I like being able to just walk around and not have anybody, you know, recognize me and bother me. Um, but so I'm able to, to, to keep it in perspective. But I always kept it in perspective. So this is my feeling about fame. Celebrity is worth two things. One, you can get a reservation in most restaurants. And two, you can get a good doctor if you need it. You know, and I've taken advantage of both of those situations. So if I call up a restaurant as just me, no, but if I call up as the assistant to J.J. French, who's in town with a producer and like a table, magically, Richard, I get a table. It's good to be okay. king. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. I can do that with almost any restaurant anywhere. You know, so, you know why? They just Google you right there anyway. If they even if they don't know you, that's they it. go, who is the guy? Oh, oh, it's him. Oh, all of a sudden we have a table. So that, that what you were describing about being 32 and being a level headed. And that sounds like the S in twisted stability. Yeah. And that's a good, that's a nice segue. So what is stability in a company? Well, stability, if you look at any business at all, like a plane, when does a plane fly the most efficiently when it's just nice and smooth? But what happens when you hit turbulence? You start shaking. So most businesses and most people run into turbulence. How bad is that turbulence? Well, turbulence takes shape in a lot of different ways. I always say that there's, there's um, challenges, turbulence, there's crises, turbulence, and then there's catastrophe, turbulence. And you need to be able to understand the difference between challenges, crises, and catastrophes and be able to respond correctly because you know what? You don't want the catastrophe under any circumstances. And so being able to handle heavy duty problems, like when our truck got blown up, you know, everybody could freak out with, with that happens or during these rejections or, you know, when a band member almost dies or when the drummer, when the, when the singer pulled a gun out on the drummer and almost killed him. I mean, we're, you know, watching all this stuff and learning how to survive this stuff is an extraordinary experience. So I have uh, explained in detail um, how to perceive problems that come into your company, how to differentiate between the daily challenges versus the crises prior to the catastrophes. And then also I explain the difference between reactive and, and proactive trauma. Now, that sounds like really high-minded stuff, something that you get out of a business school. Why do you have a heavy metal guitar player talking about proactive and reactive trauma? I mean, that almost sounds so prof professorial. It's like mind-boggling. But the truth is, is that there's two types of, of, of traumas that will hit you personally and hit your business. And one is trauma that occurs to you, which is reactive trauma and trauma that you create in order to shake things up. And let's just say, if to make it really clear, reactive trauma is your spouse just tells you that they want a divorce and you had no idea that was coming, right? None whatsoever blindsided you and, oh my God, you're freaking out. But if you decided you wanted a divorce, you would proactive trauma. So you know the divorce is coming, but you're setting yourself up. And so you got the flak jacket on, the helmet on, you realize this shit, excuse me, the stuff is going to hit the fan and um, you're prepared for it. Well, in business, it's the same thing. You have proactive and you have reactive. And the best way to handle your business is with, re with, with proactive. Like you want to be the one who sees the problems. You want to be the one that has to shake things up. Every time I changed a band member, it was proactive trauma. Changing a band member is not a fun thing to do. Changing a band member is a crisis. Right, right. We are, we're just so, about out of time, uh, JJ. Very quickly, you and D, do you get together a lot? You, uh, he just celebrated his 40th anniversary. Talk about yes, stability. I, yeah, I was his MC at that wedding. 
as master of ceremonies. And I ran my first marathon the next day. I reminded him, you know, I said, by the way, do you remember I was your master of ceremonies? I missed the wedding because I was training for the marathon and got, a, got to the wedding late because I got stuck in traffic. Anyway, we're great. We talk every day. The band talks every day uh, because we license our music every day. So that's because we, that's our business now is we license our music and we are the most licensed band in the history of rock and roll. We're not going to take it. I want to rock in the most licensed songs in the history of heavy metal. And whether you like my band or hate my band, you can never take that away from us. So you're going to have to live with, we're not going to take it for many, many, many generations. <laughs> and we're very pleased with that. We're very pleased with our Canadian following. It's always been fantastic. Um, the fact that the band continues on after nearly 50 years is, is amazing. And, and the band has no intention of getting back together again right now. That'd be like the next obvious thing is the band can get back together. But if you read the book and you understand what the TWISTED is uh, and read the amount of shows we did, you'll understand why the band succeeded. And hopefully it's a blueprint for turning roadblocks into pathways, which again, sounds like high-minded um, self-help, but it is because that's really what Twisted Sister was for me. And, and hopefully people will learn valuable lessons from it. Well, they'll have to read the book to do the, uh, the to get the T, E, and D in Twisted. JJ, what a, a thrill hanging out with you for the last hour. Thank you so much. Richard, always a pleasure. And uh, I love listening to your show. And we'll continue to always be a fan. Thank you. JJ French, founding member, Twisted Sister. And the book again is Twisted Business Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. All right, plenty of show to come. Coming up in hour two, my conversation with a former deputy coroner from the Midwest and the author of I See Dead People. <laughs> 